Well, take your Bibles and let's open God's Word, the book of Ephesians. I've been so blessed just to walk through this book with you. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 4 today, verse 25. Going to go as far as chapter 4. We're going to crack into chapter 5 today. Just a couple of verses we'll look at there. And uh, there is a truth here that is a very practical truth. There is something, as I read the words of Paul, I'm reminded of in Bible interpretation, and here I'll give you a little $64 word here, particularization. What in the world is that? That's when you've got a passage where you have a principle that is presented, an instruction. We're into the instruction part of the book. Early on, there were no instructions. There was nothing for us to do. There was just a lot for us to believe. A lot of wonderful stuff. Paul just heaped all this wonderful truth upon us. He said, this is who you are. This is what God has done. These are the benefits. These are the riches of glory. This is your position. All this stuff. Just believe this. All this good stuff. And then we get into a few later chapters and he says, now here's what you are to do. And so we've got some instructions. And in the last passage, first part of chapter four, we were given this this principle, this instructive principle. And then in the next passage, we are given the particulars of the principle. Here's what you are to do, and here's what that looks like. Here's what that is, uh, how that is lived out. Here's, Here's the practical side of what you were told to do. What were we told to do? In the first part of chapter four, the main idea there was put off the old self and put on the new self. And here in this part of chapter four, we're going to learn what that looks like and how exactly we do that. And that is going to be our context today. And everything we're going to look at as far as the particulars of adopting the new into our lives, it's all in the context of people. Because we are a new people. And so the the living out of our faith takes place in this entity called the church. So the particulars of living out what God has told us to do is in the context of people and not just people, Christian people. That's how we grow. We grow among other Christians. And not just Christians, bad Christians. (laughs) What in the world's a bad Christian? You know, we we moved here, uh, got the family out here in December, bought a house in Elon, so we live in Elon, we live just a few miles from Elon University, and somebody told me, uh, you know, their mascot is the Phoenix, but it used to be the Fighting Christians, and I said, well, I've known some of those as, as a pastor, I mean, I grew up Baptist, we're all fighting Christians, you know, and, and there are Christians who can behave badly, in fact, all of us can behave badly, Amen. Amen or oh me, right, as my dad used to say in the pulpit. Uh, yeah, we, we, can, we can do some, some bad stuff. Uh, we're going to see that unfolded in our passage today. Can Christians lie? According to verse 25, they can. Can Christians steal? Well, according to verse 28, they can. Can Christians cause you to be bitter? Or can Christians be bitter? Yes, in verse 31, it says that. So we need to forgive one another, meaning we do things that require forgiveness. So yes, we can be bad. And, and it is for this reason, the reality of redeemed yet fallen in our flesh, people in the church, it is for this reason that some people never settle into a church because they get disappointed. 
They come into a church and they, they, they like what they see, they like the experience and they suck all the good out of it, but then they get their feelings hurt and they get their hackles up and they get upset and they move on. They leave in a huff and they go to another church. Is this, see, this pattern sounds familiar. And then what happens? Same thing. Same thing, they do it all again, right? And, and they're always perpetually disappointed. Why? Because there's no such thing as a perfect church. That belongs in the category of unicorns and the tooth fairy and the Panthers winning the Super Bowl. It's a fantasy. <laughs> and there's no such thing. And so you go from church to church to church, and I've seen it a hundred times where people go to every church in town, and they eventually just cycle back to the original church that they left in the first place. And now they got all the baggage from all these other places, and it just begins a whole new adventure. But we are not to adopt that pattern. Paul says we're to deal with things differently. And he cautions uh, against that. And there's a big overarching theme at the top of your notes, and it's this. Ephesians 4.25 through 5.2 offers instruction to Christians who offend and to Christians who get offended. Those are the two. You got, you're either an offender or you're offended. And you've been both. But at some point, you are one of those two things, okay? And uh, no matter which category you fall into, you got to understand that our standard and rule of our conduct is the Trinity and the Word of God. Unfortunately, that is not how we respond. Because in your notes, when we react to other people who offend us, we're making them our standard. And folks, they're not your standard. Our true standard is God because he governs our behavior. We're gonna tear into this. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time in the word today. What a joy to be here, to have just worshiped uh, so gloriously with one another, God. And now, as we look to your word, may you hit us between the eyes with truth, and I pray that we will take it, apply it, and be all that you've called us to be in Christ's name. Amen. Let's see how Paul deals with this. Over the last passage, we heard, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk not like the Gentiles, like the pagans. Now, how are we to walk? What does that look like? We're to walk in love by dealing with unlovely people, unlovable people. And so we, we, we come into this place where we hear about unity, and we often assume that unity is not fighting, and that's not the case because we're going to have disagreements. You're going to get offended, and Paul is very familiar with this. Has Paul ever gotten into it with other Christians? Has he ever gotten sideways, crossways with other people? Did he ever mix it up with Peter? Yeah, did he ever mix it up with Barnabas? Yes, how about, uh, how about the Christians back in Jerusalem? Oh yeah, how about John Mark? Yeah, he was annoyed at little John Mark. How about timid Timothy? Yeah, he got frustrated with Timothy too. So he has dealt with this firsthand, and we will always deal with this. The only, the only time we won't is when we are in glory and we stand before God glorified. I'm looking forward to that day, amen? Gonna have a glorified body. But you know what? When we think of being glorified before the Lord and, and having that new glorious body like his body, we think of all the physical things we don't have to deal with, all the creaks and the groans that we've accumulated. Oh, amen. <laughs> and uh, I'm looking forward to having a much higher metabolism in heaven. But you know what else we're gonna, gonna be free from? Personality flaws. Won't that be nice? You're thinking of your spouse right now. You're going, make it so, Lord, you know? 
But Paul knows this stuff, and he knows that that day is sometime in the undefined future, but for now, we've got to define our relationship and be one. And integral to that is, first off, honesty. Honesty. Look how he begins in verse 25. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood. Remember, we're to put away the old self. How do we put it away? We put it away by beginning to put away falsehood. He says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So put away falsehood. And so he is going to, here's his MO in this passage. He's gonna, in a couple of different sections, he's gonna address the offender, and then he's gonna address the offended. The perpetrator and the victim. Of, of the sin, of the crime, the one who has done wrong. He's gonna take them one at a time. So first to the offender in your notes, he says this, we are one body and body parts shouldn't lie to each other. Has your body ever lied to you? Maybe in some sort of, sort of a, an athletic situation where, where you've got a body part that is communicating, I've got this and it doesn't got this. Now, that, that is increasingly true the older I get, but it was true when I was younger, too. just depends on your coordination and all this stuff. When I was call, in college, a friend of mine invited me to go skiing with a group of, 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 of people, students from Liberty, and I said, I, I don't know how to ski. I've never skied before. He's like, oh, come on. I go, no, nah, I don't think so. And he goes, Sherry's going to be there. I said, really? Sherry was a girl that I kind of had a thing for back in college. And he goes, yeah, she's going to be there. And I go, well, I don't want her to see me on the slopes looking like an idiot. And he goes, no, 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 it's not like that. It's skiing, it's fun, you fall down, it's, there's snow, it's romantic. And I'm going, okay, all right. And I could start to, I came around. I'm like, all right, I'll go. I said, will you teach me how to ski? He's like, yeah, no problem, I'm a pro, I got it. So we go, and we're there, a whole group of students. I got my lift ticket, I got my skis, I got my little boot things, I got everything. I'm all geared up, ready to go out and hit the slopes. I look over there, Sherry, she doesn't have any gear on, no skis, she's got an armload of books. And I go over, I go, hey, what, 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 what you, <laughs> what you doing? And she goes, oh, I'm not skiing today. My, my friend is here from out of town. She loves to ski. And so we came, but I got to write a paper. So I'm going to be in the lodge drinking cocoa and studying. I go, really? And I look at my friend. He's like, you know, he's like, hey, don't worry about it. You're going to have a great day. I'm going to teach you how to ski. So he, he says, the first thing, anybody ski? All right. He says, the first thing you got to learn is you got to learn how to plow. That's when you point your toes in. You know, I kind of look like this anyway sometimes. But, you know, you point your toes in. That way you don't start sliding when you don't want to be sliding. It's you can stay in one spot. And he's like, so do that. And I try. I'm like, okay. And I'm, we're on the slopes and I'm trying this out. And he goes, you're not plowing. I go, yes, I am. I'm plowing. He goes, you're not plowing. I go, well, my, my feet are turned in. He goes, Grim, you're not plowing. And as I'm standing there trying to plow, I am drifting away. And he's like, you got to plow, you got to plow. I go, I'm trying to plow. And I get further away. He's like, bye. And now I'm heading down the hill. Never skied in my life. And I'm on my own. And I'm going down this mountain going, oh, 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 oh. And I'm thinking, okay, okay, you got this, you got this. You've seen, you've seen skiing before. You've watched the Olympics before, Grim. You know what you're doing. You know, what have you seen? What do they do? Well, they take the poles and they tuck them under their arms like this. Let's see, what else do they do? Oh yeah, they bend down like this. I didn't know that made you take off like a rocket. I'm flying down this hill, 
And I start hitting these moguls, man. I'm getting air. And, you know, I'm still upright. I haven't fallen yet. I'm like, hey, I got this. Yeah, I got my body's telling me, don't worry about it. Everything is under control. And then I look and I could see down at the bottom of the hill, there's all the line of people waiting to get on the lift. And I'm thinking, I have no idea how to stop. No idea. And so I'm going, okay, okay, well, what's going to happen here? I'm going to be on the news or I got to take one for the team. And so I realize I just going to have to, I just going to have to, I don't know. All I know to do is, is just do one of these jobs, right? And so I do that. Man, I spun around about 19 times and I came to a, 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 a standstill and I'm just kind of splayed out like this and I look heavenward and I can see this guy in the lift go above me and he's like. <laughs> Sometimes your body lies to you. It says, don't worry about it and you need to worry, right? The body should not lie to itself and we are the body and the parts of the body must be honest with one another. We must communicate honestly, clearly. There are different ways that we can lie to one another. We can tell straight up bald-faced lies. Some people do that. Some people are very good at that. Other people, it's not so on the nose. But there's still a propensity, as we all have, to be phony. You ever, can you do that? Are we capable of being fake with each other? Absolutely. Well, you know what? It's all the same to God. It's all the same to God. And so the person that you lie to, what's your biggest fear when you tell a lie? Being found out. You know, the person you lie to, you don't want them to find out that you've told them something that is not true. And so what do you have to do? You gotta figure out the trail, right? You got, you got a false universe and a true universe and you gotta keep them from intersecting. And there's this constant fear, this constant looking over your shoulder to keep those worlds apart. And you gotta build a wall in between those worlds. And it's a very stressful thing that you've created for yourself because you've not been honest. I remember I saw a viral video of a soccer player. He was interviewed after a match and he was presented with the MVP trophy for this very important match. And he was very excited. And he was, you could tell he had adrenaline coursing through his veins and he was all emotional and everything. And he was happy. He's like, oh, I've, I've always dreamed of this being MVP. So many people I want to thank. I want to thank my family, my wife, my girlfriend. And he got this look of sheer terror. He just outed himself. You know, he'd kept these worlds, you could just imagine how long he'd kept that a secret, and he just blurts it out on national TV. And so, if you don't have a good conscience, you cannot serve God. You cannot serve God. Proverbs 28, 1, the wicked flee when no one pursues. The wicked flee when no one pursues. Your conscience forces you into this perpetual state of fear. But the righteous are bold as a lion. That's how God wants you to be, bold. You need a clear conscience. 2 Corinthians 1, 12, our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we be behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. That's what he wants for you. If you are a liar, you have to continue lying to keep that front up. And therefore, it's pretty much impossible for you to serve the Lord because you're always afraid of being found out and you don't have any authority. Try parenting. When you have a hidden uh, sin, something that you're keeping from your family, try counseling people in the name of Jesus. Why do people lie? It's kind of like a drug addiction, isn't it? You know, they're, they're, uh, they, they can't deal with the world as it is, and so they create a construct 
for themselves to, to, that they can escape to. And that, that happens with drugs. It can happen with fabrication as well. And lying is really a, a mark, I would say, of immaturity. You don't want to struggle. You don't want to do the hard work that it takes to navigate life. And so there's this little shortcut called lying that we uh, adopt. And so Paul says, turn away from falsehood. That's his word to the perpetrator, to the offender. Uh, And now we're going to look at the guy that's been lied about or lied to. And he addresses the offended in verse 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. Well, this is very interesting. Is it wrong to be angry? Apparently not. Apparently not. Some of you are like, I knew it. (laughs) Yes, you know. So hold on now. The idea here is is that it's, it's, it's possible to respond morally to something in anger if you are responding to a legitimate wrong that's been done. We see God angry. In scripture, we see godly people angry. Jesus would get angry. Moses would get angry. And uh, an emotional response to when you have been wronged is not a bad thing. We are told be angry. It's almost like it's a command. It's almost like go for it. Go ahead, be angry. But he says, but do not sin. Do not sin. And so you can respond even emotionally and still be okay, but there's a red line there. There's a red line there. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. What's that mean? You ever go to bed mad? Are you married to someone who goes to bed mad sometimes? Any of you guys know the comfortability or uncomfortability of your sofa? Huh? How's that work for you when, when you go to bed mad, huh? Uh, this is a quotation from the Old Testament. Paul is quoting from uh, Psalm 4.4, David says, be angry, do not sin, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Be angry uh, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Some people, mainly husbands, interpret that as we got to hash this out right now so I can win the argument before bedtime. And then we'll have peace, or at least I will. And that never works. That's not what this means. This means go to sleep at night and rest. Having given it to God, he says to the wounded, don't go to bed mad, don't go to sleep mad because it will then fester and it becomes like a boil and you'll wake up even more mad. You've got to give it to God. So he says to the offended in your notes, there's a red line for anger. What is the red line for anger? It's bitterness. That's the red line. Be angry, but don't sin. And the sin refers to the sin of bitterness. And the next verse, verse 27 says, and give no opportunity to the devil. Because in your bitterness, that is exactly what you do. Opportunity, the Greek word for opportunity is topas. Topas means place, Uh, topography. We study places. Don't give the devil a place, a foothold in your bitterness. What are we to do instead? Romans 12, 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give a place, topas, to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Who fights your battles? You? No, God does. Don't give a topas to the devil, but leave one for God. Bitterness is just a bad idea. I don't care who you are. I could be an atheist and say that. I could say, you know, I don't believe the Bible, but I could tell you what, bitterness is a waste of time. 
It's a destructive thing. That should be obvious to anyone. Don't be bitter. There's no such thing as a happy, bitter person. You accomplish nothing by it. What does bitterness do? It, it, it ruins your peace. Where is bitterness focused? On the past. Can you go back there? Anybody got a time machine? No. So what, what good is bitterness going to do you regarding the past? Not a thing. And not only that, the bitterness keeps an account. You keep track. Every time that person that caused you anger that turned into bitterness, every time they do something, you're like, well, that's two. Yeah. Yeah, oh, well, there you go again. And you just keep a record. What does the scripture say? Love keeps no record of wrongs. No record of wrongs. And as you do this, engaging in this behavior, as you go, there's a sense of superiority on your part, you who are bitter, as if you've done nothing wrong. And you can't be told or corrected in any way because bitterness breeds self-righteousness. That is another byproduct of this. And this is why God says, vengeance is mine. It's not yours. You make it yours. You actually do harm to yourself because you'll never be happy. You can't change your situation. He says, let me handle it. You're not gonna solve this through your bitterness. But we all have this innate desire to punish. It's like if we don't lay into somebody, if we don't let them have it for what they've done to us, some tragedy will occur. You're like, but I've been wronged. Yes, I know you've been wrong. I, but I've got to do something about it. Well, why? Why? Well, because the moral order of the cosmos will collapse. The universe will implode. It's like if somebody goes... And you're like, yeah, yeah. They go, you got to do the... Ah, two bits, right? You got to finish it. And that's this instinct... That we have, we've just got to, we can't leave it there. We can't leave it to God because it belongs to God, but we have to, we have to give it to him. We got to let it go. Wouldn't it be weird if on the cross, if you read in the scriptures, and they spat upon Jesus and Jesus spitting back said, <laughs> that doesn't sound right, right? You know, uh, can you imagine? And Jesus spake unto them, you spit on me, fool. I'm all, how about I send you to hell? What do you think about that? It would be a little out of character, wouldn't it? Yes, he became like us physically, not morally. We are to become like him morally. He's got to make us like him. Instead, what did he do? He's on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. That more than any other thing is why after he breathed his last, the Roman soldier said, surely this was the son of God. You think they said that because of the earthquake and the sky growing black? No, it's because of this immortal superhuman ability to forgive those who are doing the ultimate wrong to him. We're never more Christ-like than when we forgive. And now we go back, having addressed the offended, now we go back to the offender because as it turns out, this guy is not just good at lying. In verse 28, he says, let the thief, let the thief. Verse 25, verse 28, they sort of go together. Anybody who'd be willing to lie would be willing to steal a little bit. He says, let the thief, and he gives three instructions. So in your notes, to the offender, the first instruction, no longer steal. What's that mean? First thing in your notes, be repentant. He says to the offender, be repentant. Change your thinking. 
about your behavior. Repent is metanoeo in the Greek. It means change your mind. Change your thinking. You know what happens when you change your mind? You change your behavior. Stop stealing. When you truly repent, you don't do the thing that displeases God. A change of behavior. But rather, he says, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. This is the second instruction. To the offender, be productive. Be repentant. Be productive. Do honest work. Get a job. Make a contribution. Have a sense of self-respect. Don't take. Produce. So that, he says, he may have something to share with anyone in need. See, there's a, there's a means to an end here. And this is the third instruction. Be generous. Be generous, he says to the offender. Share with others. Contribute something to your brothers, your sisters. Turn your life around. That is the wisdom to the offender, to the guilty. But here we go again. You got, a guilt, you got, a, you got an offended party over here. They've been lied about. They've been lied to. Now they've been ripped off. What is to be their response? In verse 29, Paul tells him, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Let me help you with the original Greek there. It renders literally, shut your pie hole. <laughs> All right? That, it doesn't really say that, but it should. It should say that. Uh, actually, the word for corrupting, what is that? Sapros. Sapros. Does anybody know about plants and trees and such? Uh, you know what a saprophyte is? You ever heard that term? A saprophyte feeds off of something. It's, it's like a parasite, but it's not a parasite. Parasite feeds off, lives off of something living. A saprophyte lives off of something dead. Okay? It's like fungus. It's like a mold. Those are saprophytic. And so this word sapros, corrupting talk, when you, when you respond in anger out of bitterness over something that's in the past, something that is dead and gone, that those words are corrupting. They're saprophytic. They are, they are like a mold on you. And you are, you are putting them out there and they're debilitating to you and to everyone around you that is listening. And whoever persists in saying these, this, these words, engaging in this kind of talk, they are producing a saprophyte, feeding off of something dead, the sin that was perpetrated. Uh, but, he says, only such is as good for building up. Don't talk with corrupting talk, but speak in a manner that is good, as, good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. You have such power at your disposal. You've got this little muscle in your mouth called a tongue and it can be used to build up or it can be used to tear down it can be saprophytic or it can be life giving and so here's Paul's words to the offended in your notes your tongue is for edification not destruction not destruction James talks about the tongue famously in James 3 verse 9 he says with it the tongue we bless our Lord and Father. This is, the, this is the contradiction. And so we're talking about a Christian here. Do Christians do this sort of thing? Yes, yes. Because he says with this, we, we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Okay? 
From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. How do you use your tongue? It's amazing. Some people have this encouragement thing down. I've known some people, there have been some people I've, I've encountered in the ministry that are life-giving people. I've got a good friend in California named Bob. He is a delight. He is an encouragement to me. Whenever I see him, uh, see he's calling me, I'm quick to answer because I know what awaits. It's gonna be, it's gonna be something that's encouraging, that builds me up because that's who he is. He's like a breath of fresh air. He's a spring of fresh water. And there are other people that I see him coming, I want a duck, man. I want to get out a mustache disguise or something because I know they're a perpetual bummer. They are just a drain. They are bitter. They complain all the time. Uh, They tear down. They're constantly critical. They're like a cross between Eeyore and Oscar the Grouch. (laughs) Ain't nobody got time for that, right? And so don't be saprophytic, be edifying in how you speak with one another. We human beings are amazing. We're like no other creature on the planet. We can think something, we can feel something emotionally, internally, and like that, we can then uh, compress air in our diaphragm and force it upward to our voice box where we've got these vibrating cords and we create a column of sound and the faster those vocal cords vibrate, the higher the pitch, uh, or the, the slower they vibrate, the lower the pitch. We can adjust the pitch of, of that sound that comes out of us. And we can use our, our teeth and our tongue, in fact, different points on our tongue, and we can use the hard palate and the soft palate and the, the, the lips, and we can form words. And we can put that out there, sound in the form of words, and it can communicate what just nanoseconds prior was in here and in here. And we can put it out there in front of another person, and whatever we put out there, the nature of it will determine whether we eviscerate them or lift them up. It's an amazing ability that we have. And slight, slight changes in tone can make all the difference. I just love you. I just love the way you act, you know, you see, hey, dude, hey, doofus, right, we have this ability, it's an amazing thing, and then there's this, Paul says in verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, so the context is wounding people verbally, And then he immediately says, and don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And what that means in your notes is because we are his body, when we inflict pain on each other, it hurts him because it's his body. If you're wounding someone who's in the body, you're wounding Christ because it's his body. Okay, you're grieving God. This is an off quote, uh, off quoted verse right here. People quote this verse a lot. A lot of times people don't look at the context. They say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And they say, see, you see, see, you can't grieve the Holy Spirit. If you grieve the Holy Spirit, you know what that means? It means you'll lose your salvation. That's not what that means. You don't cherry pick a verse and make it mean something that the context does not indicate. That's not at all what it means. I don't believe you can lose your salvation, but even if you did, you can't use that verse. You can't use that verse because it goes on to say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed 
for the day of redemption, you were sealed. What does that mean? That is a permanent uh, state of your being, okay? It, it means you've, you've been sealed by God in such a way that that, that, that cannot be broken, you understand. In ancient times, when a ruler would send a communique to another ruler, they would put a seal, the royal seal, on that scroll. And if that seal was broken in transit, whoever was responsible would be put to death. Because you don't break the seal if you don't have authority. And so we see things in scripture. The tomb of Christ had a big old Roman seal on it. You break the seal, it's under penalty of death. Well, the seal got broken, didn't it? But who broke it? Someone with authority. God broke the seal. God outranked Caesar. Okay? John, in Revelation, he's weeping. He's, he's got this vision of heaven and he's weeping. Why? Because there's a scroll and there's no one worthy to open the scroll. No one with authority. And then steps forward the Lion of Judah. <laughs> he's got authority. He opens the seal. He reads the scroll, right? You don't have authority to break God's seal on your life. Therefore, you cannot lose your salvation. That, amen, come on, that's worth celebrating right there. Some people say, well, I know I don't have authority to break the seal, but God does. And if I tick off God, he might break the seal. Uh, he's not gonna do that because he just said that you were sealed for the day of redemption. When is that? Has that come and gone? No, that is yet future. Has not come yet, seal's not broken. It, it, you are sealed until that day. What happens on that day? You are ultimately and finally saved and glorified before God. Yes, that's right. So you are, you are guaranteed of a day when you will be ultimately redeemed, the act of salvation finally completed, and that is the definition of real love, that there is a God who loves you so much that he saved you, seals you, and has secured you. That's love. And Paul is saying, don't grieve that person who loves you that much. Don't grieve him. And in light of that, we should not fail to love one another because we have been forgiven, we have been saved, we have been sealed, we are secure, and we extend the same kind of love toward the rest of Christ's body. In your notes, we avoid sin in our present life to show gratitude to the one who gave us eternal life. You live out now what eternity is supposed to look like. We're not avoiding sin to, to keep salvation. We, we avoid sin to honor God who made it impossible for us to lose salvation. That's the truth. Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly when? In the present age. He gave us all that to live as he intends, right now, the grace of God. It's not merely to secure eternity, it's to inform our present. Let me, indulge me here, I wanna to read to you from Titus. Paul writes to Titus, this is beautiful. And, and he, he explains how our actions toward one another ought to be a reflection of how we have been treated by God. He says to Titus, verse two of chapter three, uh, speak evil of no one, Avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Verse four, but 
when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. What a blessing. How we have been treated by our God. And in light of all that, considering what he has done for me, can I not be kind to others? What God has forgiven me of, everything else pales that has been done to me by comparison to what I've been forgiven of. And so Paul goes on and he says, here's what happens if you don't. And he gives us a sequence of words. And it's no coincidence how these words fall. Look at verse 31. He says, let all bitterness, pay pay careful attention to these words, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now you need to catch this sequence right here. One word leads to the next. There's this descending staircase that you go down. And the first step down is what? Bitterness. Starts with bitterness. That's the first. Greek word, pukros, uh, means sharp. When you are hurt, there's a sharp pain. There's a wince internally when you are, when someone speaks against you, when someone cuts you down, gossips, betrays you, you're wounded. You hurt me. Internally, you, you, you respond with bitterness. Our feelings are hurt, and from bitterness comes wrath, wrath. This is an emotion. Greek word here is thumos. Thumos, it means passion. Hurt makes you heat up. You, you, you feel that passion when you're wounded, and you get bitter about it. You feel your face flush. You feel your blood pressure elevate a little bit. Heart rate goes up. You're, you're breathing gets faster at least it does for me why because you're about to experience the next word what's the next word anger anger greek word is orge orge means impulse you don't think you just give yourself over it's all emotion it's it's this rabid uh animal instinct in fact uh, it's kind of gross the word orgy comes from this word orge you give yourself over without thinking Just what you feel. It's all what you feel. It's all what you desire. Is that ever good? No. Wrath leads quickly to anger. You're in the the emotion of the moment and, and there's no thinking. And you get wrathful, you stop thinking. You stop thinking. It's all driven by emotion. You're about to hulk out here. Poodle's about to become a pit bull in this moment. And you give in to this release and 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 you unleash something. What's the next word? It's a clamor. It's a clamor. Krauge in the Greek, it means to cry. It means to scream. You ever get into one of these back and forth where you just, you just, you just let it out? It just comes out of you screaming, yelling. You get mad, you get verbal, you get vocal, and the content of that screaming gets pretty ugly. Do you say things you don't mean? Well, you mean them right then. You mean them in that moment when you're not thinking. You mean them in that moment when, when you're completely driven by emotion, but they're not things that you would say if you were thinking clear. They're not things that you would say if you were calm. The, the word here for clamor, uh, uh, blasphemia. What do you think comes from that word? 
blasphemy. You injure another person's name. You defame them to their face. You say things about them that are horrific things, just undermining them and and casting them in the most negative of light. It's like taking a rock and throwing it through a window. And you do it to their face or not, or you do it about them to someone else. And that's where it gets really ugly because you, you have no pause and you just destroy their reputation. You present a picture of a person whereby you communicate, I hate this person. And not only that, it gives me great satisfaction to see to it that now you hate them as well. What an awful behavior. Do Christians engage in this? Yes, we do. And the last word is malice. Malice, kakia. You know what that is? Evil, kakia is evil. Can, can a child of God exhibit evil? Yeah, full-blown evil. If they don't get it under control. But rather than have that happen, Paul says in verse 32, be kind to one another. Be kind. Greek word for kind is krestos. Krestos. What's it sound like? It sounds like Christos, Christ. And, and for that reason... Christians and Christos were like homonyms, words that sound alike. And so when people heard about the Christians, they equated them with kindness because of the sound of that word, but also because of their actions. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples and that you have love for one another. We are, we are known by our kindness. And you know what the word Christos means? The root is cre, cre means ought as in the way something ought to be. We read from James about the tongue, the poisonous of the tongue. He says, uh, from the same mouth, blessing and cursing, these things ought, cre, cre, they ought not be. So this is the way thing, for you to be kind is for you to function the way you ought to function. And in your notes, kindness is the indication outwardly of what we ought to be inwardly. I watched a baseball game one time where, you know how they, there are pop flies and there's people at, at major league stadiums that chase down these balls. You know, they're at every game, they're out there, they got their glove and man, they'll, they'll jump over rows of seats. You know, they'll climb up into the bleacher section, they'll do whatever it takes to get a, get a ball. And there was one and it was way up in, in, in uh, the nosebleeds and there were two people chasing after this ball. It was coming, man. And there was, a, there was an adult man and there was a little boy. And the adult man was outpacing him, obviously. And he got there and he made this, this crazy catch. And the little boy was right behind him. And the little boy just stopped like that. And the guy was so ecstatic. And he was jumping up and down. He's pumping his fists and all this stuff. And then he looked down and he saw the little boy. And without even missing a beat, he gave him the ball. <laughs> gave him the ball. And that's exactly what the rest of the people at the stadium did. Everybody, they, they celebrated that moment. It got replayed. It's kind of one of those nice moments that you don't see on the news all the time. What, what made it special? Kindness. He made a daring catch. It was an impressive catch. But what really made him a hero was the act of kindness because that's how it ought to be. You know, he, he becomes a hero in the eyes of people because of his kindness. The little boy now has an incredible memory, a valuable uh, souvenir and a timeless lesson about being kind. 
And to be kind is to do what ought to be done, to do what is ideal, to do what is best. And the right conduct among one another that is best for all involved, what makes it the best thing for everybody involved? When you are kind, kindness keeps the offended person from from sinking into bitterness and all that that entails. And kindness causes the offender to repent and to seek reconciliation. Romans 2, 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It is his kindness that brings us to repentance. When you are kind to others no matter what, it's in keeping with the character of God. Do what ought to be done. Do the right thing. My, my wife listens to Dr. Laura. Anybody listen to Dr. Laura in here? Used to. She's great. At the end of her segments, she'll say, right before commercial, she'll go, now go do the right thing. And Dr. Laura's Jewish, but she is, she's basically quoting a point that Paul is making right here. You do the right thing by being kind. And when you are kind to others, no matter what, it's in keeping with God's heart. And he says, you do this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Uh, the word for tenderhearted there, it means have good bowels. What a weird phrase. Have good bowels. Anytime you see heart in the New Testament, the Greek word, to be more accurate, it says bowels. I'm kind of glad my Bible doesn't say, you know, be tender boweled. You know, I, I'm kind of glad about that. But what it means is come from the innermost place. It's got to come from within, from the deepest part of your being that is touched by God. He says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Somebody paid this infinite debt for you. Can you at the very least be kind? God is not asking you to climb up on a cross and bleed to death. What you're doing by being kind is a trickle of grace. It's not the rushing mighty river of grace that was Christ at Calvary. So we should at least be uh, uh, an echo of that. And now we move into chapter five. I'm breaking the line of the chapter there because... The first word of verse one in chapter five is therefore. See, the thought's not over. And so I don't just stop at the end of that chapter because Paul's still on this, this uh, thought line right here. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And so what we take away from that in your notes is that we should respond by mimicking God. Mimic God, not your offender. You don't respond in kind. You don't mimic the one who wronged you. You mimic God. What did Christ do on the cross? Forgive them. Forgive them. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the whole Christian life. Mimic Jesus. Uh, imitate God is what Paul's saying. Elsewhere, Paul's gonna say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Don't be like the world. In fact, I would say that it is when we are hurt that we have the greatest opportunity to be like Jesus. When you are wounded... When someone has wronged you, that is the greatest opportunity you, that you have to be like Jesus. And in verse two, he says, and walk in love, walk in love. Don't walk like the Gentiles. Don't walk like the pagans. Walk, how? In love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. He purchased you for this. I think one of the greatest books ever written is Les Miserables. 
I don't, maybe you've seen, well, you might have seen the movie. I, it's better if you saw the stage show, the musical. Uh, that way you don't have to listen to Russell Crowe. Anyway, <laughs> Les Miserables tells the story of this man, Jean Valjean. He's a Frenchman. When he was a teenage boy, he stole a loaf of bread and he was arrested. He ended up going to prison for 15 years for stealing a loaf of bread. And in prison, he becomes this hardened, bitter convict. And he's eventually paroled. He can't find work. He's got this mark on his life. And he wanders from town to town. And a kind bishop takes him in. And just treats him beautifully. Gives him a bed to sleep in. But the hardened criminal mindset takes over. What was created in prison manifests. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean gets up and robs the bishop blind. Takes all the silver takes the crystal, leaves. He's shortly arrested by some gendarmes, some police. They bring him, they recognize the, the belongings. They bring him back to the bishop's house. They awaken the bishop. They say, Father, forgive us. This man has stolen from you. And they present him before the bishop and the bishop looks at the bag of all of the valuables and he says, you're mistaken. He says, I, I gave him all of this. Here, and he looks at Valjean, he says, what were you thinking? You forgot the most valuable thing. And he took these golden, or excuse me, silver candlesticks from the mantle, and he, the most valuable thing in the house, and he put them into the bag and gave it back to him. And the police apologized and left, and Valjean looks at the bishop with bewilderment, not understanding the kindness. And the bishop says to Valjean, he says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Folks, you were bought by the blood of Christ. By faith, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. In the same way, as you, a Christian who names the name of Christ, are done wrong. You behave as Jesus did toward you and you buy back the goodness of others through your kindness. You motivate them to be who God called them to be because they were bought by the same Savior. And that's how we are to function in the body of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to grow in this beautiful uh, machine called the church, God. And it's, it's, it's a, an incredible thing that you have designed. Uh, it's your bride, but it's also the incubator of our holiness. And we learn how to be like you in, in the midst of one another, in the shelter of each other. We grow and we are developed and we sharpen and we encourage each other. And I pray that for this church, may we grow as disciples. May your blessing be upon every single person here today as they go in peace and in kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.